Hi there. It's another dishcast. Thanks so much for the feedback on the last one. It's amazing what somebody's just simple life at the age of 40 can tell you about a particular subject. We have some pretty stellar guests coming up. We have Jill Filipovich, John Gray, the great English philosopher, John Oberg, the great vegan propagandist. <laughs> he's he's going to reaffirm to me why I really can't eat bacon anymore. And he's going to be dis disarmingly persuasive about it. Mark Lilla, another really interesting thinker of today, an old friend of mine way back to grad school. And Kathy Young. We're going to talk about what do we do about public universities when they start teaching critical race theory, critical queer and gender theory as the sort of basis of their view of the entire world. And, and what do we do about it? I'm deeply conflicted. I believe in a free society. I don't like government intervening. On the other hand, when there is already political intervention from a non-governmental source, what do we do? Well, we'll talk it over with Kathy. This week, I am thrilled to have Nicholas Wade, a great science writer with a long career at the New York Times and the magazine Nature and the journal Science. These peripheral publications, nonetheless, he's, he's, he's gained quite a reputation. He's the author of many books, including A Troublesome Inheritance, The Faith Instinct, and Before the Dawn. And more recently, and this is what we're going to start talking about, he has issued a, 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 about a year ago, actually, put out a little book saying what we don't know about the origins of COVID-19 and why that can be a little suspicious, given what we know about other coronaviruses. He's been one of the most, I think, persuasive advocates of the possibility that this hideous epidemic started by a, a lab mistake. Nicholas, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for talking. My pleasure. Let me start by just asking you, how did you end up being so fascinated by science? It was partly because I was forbidden to do it. I went to a school in England where studying classics was encouraged. You, you were only allowed to study science if they thought you weren't too bright. So when I got to university, I decided to, to switch to science since I'd spent enough of my life writing Greek iambics or Latin hexameters. But I never wanted to be a scientist. So that left the option of writing about science. That's how I drifted into the subject. Huh. Why on earth would a school deter students from studying <laughs> science of all things? I mean, I know the importance of reading the Iliad in the original. I know the importance of knowing the difference between Cicero and Tacitus. To my very soul, I had to do the same thing. But, but I was never warned off science as such. Well, in English schools, as you, as you doubtless remember, one had to specialise at a very young age. Yeah, and, that's uh, true. You, you had to make a choice. I think it was about age 14, which stream you wanted to go in. So it, yeah. everyone around me, all my teachers, just said I had to read classics. And why the school as a whole would do that, I don't know. I guess it was a bit behind the times. I mean, the purpose of English public schools was to train people to be governor of Sudan or, or, or rule far-flung provinces of the empire. And for that, you didn't need science. You needed to, you needed lots of other qualities, which they thought could be obtained from reading the classics. Maybe not incorrectly, but they failed to keep up with the times. Yes, they did. And what was your first topic of interest in science? Was there any particular area that drew you from the get-go? Uh, yes, I was. I was always spellbound by that iconic picture of Watson and Crick looking at their model of the double helix, because that's that was clearly the secret of life, and and began a, an enormous explosion of knowledge, which is still right in the middle of of explicating how how maybe how maybe at the, maybe at the beginning, <laughs> alone in the middle. Oh it's yes, an intensely complex. And it's exciting. It, it's exciting partly because we have, then we have an impulse to sort of get a single key to explain all of human behavior and life and everything. And somehow the DNA is this, is this, is this valuable tool. 
we can overrate it though, right? Yes, because it's just one half of the equation. <clears throat> it, it's the repository of of the whole experience of the species. So life is not a thing in itself. It's an interaction between the organism and the environment. So the environment feeds back into the genome through natural selection. So, so our DNA records our, our, our historical passage for th hundreds, thousands, millions of years. So no, it's not a thing in itself. It's just half of the answer. But it's a critical clue to who we have been as humans. And the explosion in our understanding of what it is will presumably open up whole vistas of, of, of knowledge that we haven't known before. Can you give us an example like of the ancient past that we've discovered, I mean, really ancient, that we've covered through genetics rather than through archaeology or, 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 or history? Well, one of the nicest ones is fixing the date at which we started to wear clothes and we lost our fur and started to protect ourselves with clothes. So you can date that because there are three kinds of, of louse. There's a head louse and a body louse, which actually lives in clothes. And there's a pubic louse, but we needn't talk about that here. But the days at which the, <clears throat> the head louse evolved into the, into the body louse gives you a fix on when we started to wear clothing. And you can... You can you can work that out from the from the DNA of lice, in fact. Wow. And when would that be? When did we start wearing clothes? Well, actually, uh, the, the date is somewhat disputed, but uh, the, the date seems to be about 75,000 years ago. It, that, that date has been questioned like many dates in this area, but it's... Uh, Something like that. Then or nearabouts. And how long... Do we now know the human being as we currently know it biologically has been wandering around the planet on two legs? Well, the usual date given for the emergence of modern humans is, is 200,000 years. That, that, those are the yep. earliest skeletons you can see, and they don't become common until about 100,000 years later. So we're really a very young species. Compare us with some other species that are older than us. Well, ants, I guess, are our uh -huh. nearest counterpart. They're the other high peak of sociality. So, so they are like, I think, 18 million years ago. So they've had time to evolve into lots, lots of different... But 18 million years ago... 80. 80 million yes. years ago compared to 100,000 years is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, an eternity. Right. I've always been fascinated by the idea of going back in time like this to find out what actually happened in your, I always wonder myself, when did someone say, oh, it's a bit nippy. I better, better put this bare skin on my, my back or, and how did, I mean, we, we, we don't know any, any, any more details than that, but the, the story of DNA is, is constantly occurring. Of course, let me start with DNA with asking you about the DNA of the coronavirus that, that swept the world the last two or three years. Was there anything about that DNA that, that intrigued you? Uh, yes, it was when I first read an article by a guy called Yuri Dagin, who's a Russian-Canadian entrepreneur, and he wrote a long article, self-published, it appeared on medium.com, and told you everything about modern knowledge about viruses, which I must say I hadn't kept up on. I was just amazed to to see how much we now understand about how viruses work. And he looked at the coronavirus. I, I, sh I should give a technical note for your, for your readers who care about these things. Most viruses are made of, of DNA, but some, some of them have RNA as their background, the close chemical relative of, of DNA. So coronaviruses are, are, are RNA viruses, but you can man you manipulate them by converting the RNA into into DNA, which people know how to manipulate, and RNA is very difficult. So Dagan's article showed you that the <clears throat> that the coronavirus had a very important part, which is called its spike protein. And in the middle of SARS-CoV-2, in the middle of its spike protein, there's a tiny little insert of just 12 RNA units. And these inserts, this insert is very special because, firstly, 
it makes the virus far more infective than it otherwise would be. <clears throat> and secondly, there is no other virus in its viral family that has this little insert. So that raises a real problem as to how it got it. Mm. So virus- None of the other SARS viruses, SARS-1 or any of the coronaviruses, have in, have in their DNA this little inserted RNA strip that seems to make it super contagious for humans. That's correct. Would it also make it super contagious for other animals and, and who might be sub- subject to the virus? Um, I think that's the case. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And the spike protein determines what species the coronavirus can attack. But within, within any given species, having, a, having this little insert, it's called the furin cleavage site, Right. Make it far more infective. So we do not have evidence of viruses before this one having this specific adaptation that specifically makes it much more communicable between humans. That that's right. You you can you can see the same adaptation in different viruses, often on different places in the genome. But among the Sarbecoviruses, that's the family to which SARS CoV two belongs. There is no other instance of a furin cleavage site. How do furin cleavage sites happen? I mean, how does that... <laughs> I, mean, to ask you, I know these are technical matters, but they're kind of fascinating. Because presumably, if SARS-2 had evolved from an animal, it would have a much more complicated and messy content of its DNA? Or is, is, it, the, is it the simplicity and smoothness of this, this virus that draws attention? Well... Viruses have lots of very clever tricks, which they develop over the course of evolution because they evolve and multiply so fast, they explore every possible evolutionary space. So so furin cleavage sites are found in many different kinds of viruses. I don't know if they were evolved independently or not, or whether they were shared, but, but it's just one of the many tricks in the virus's repertoire. But the thing about viruses sharing information, right, it's a process called recombination. When two viruses will infect the same cell and they get reassembled using bits and pieces of the wrong virus. Recombination can only happen between viruses that belong to the same family because viruses that belong to a different family are too incompatible. So that's why if you're trying to explain that, that SARS-CoV-2 evolved naturally, you have a big problem in explaining how it acquired its furin cleavage site, given that none of its relatives have one. Right, because it would have to pick it up from somewhere else originally in order to produce it. That's a and and presumably also other coronaviruses are uh, you would you would have found this particular coronavirus. Let's say it came through a wet market as as we're as one of the the reasonable theories is you would presumably find somewhere else where the animals originated. You might be able to find some aspects and some elements of the coronavirus there. It's traveling and then finding humans. So what have we found about the origins of, of, of the COVID-19 virus before it pops up in Wuhan? Well, that's a good question because the answer is we have found nothing. And that's very surprising because by analogy with the two previous coronavirus epidemics, one was caused by SARS-1 and the other by a virus called MERS. In both these cases, we can trace their movement through the environment. We can we can see the virus virus evolve as it, as in the case of SARS-1, it, it jumped from bats probably to civets, and you can see it making sort of like 20 evolutionary mutations as it made this adaptation and then another 10 before it infected humans, and another 10 before it became a really infected lethal virus. So people expected to find the same for SARS-2, at least those who assumed it was a natural virus. And yet there's nothing there. As each month passes, there's nothing nothing to show any environmental existence of SARS-2. We don't have any infected animals we have no human serology suggesting infection with SARS-2. There, there is 
no no trail of fingerprints such as you would expect to find if it had arisen naturally. It just pops up by magic in Wuhan. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> which also well, happens. Just this is the point that Chris that, that John Stewart made that um hmm suddenly a new virus pops up. Is it is it from animals or is it from a from a lab? Well, it just so happens that the lab which is examining bat coronaviruses is in Wuhan. Amazing, isn't it? What a coincidence. Well, at some level, the coincidence is so blinding, it's really hard to ignore. But it struck me that the most important point that you made, or at least one of the most important points, was the level of security around this Wuhan lab that was dealing with very potentially dangerous coronaviruses and manipulating them. And in fact, a lab designed to try and figure out future vaccines by teasing out genetic evolutions in particular viruses. And you have to normally do that at a very high level of security because obviously these things are very dangerous. And the evidence is they did not use that high-end level of security. Could you spell that out for us? Oh, well, yes, they were, they were certainly doing all these experiments in a security level that was far, far too low. But it's a little more complicated than that in that the... the the designated levels are set by an international committee of virologists. Now, the, the highest level of security is called a BSL-4 lab, and you have to put on these funny spaceman suits and do everything in negative air pressure and, and, and work under safety. And the trouble is everything takes four times as long as in an ordinary lab. So virologists hate using these labs. <clears throat> so the committee that sets the standards for working with these viruses, set them all far too low. So it said you could work with, <clears throat> if you're working with SARS-1 or MERS, you must use BSL-3. But if you're working with anything else, any other coronavirus, it's okay to use BSL-2. So BSL-2 is about the level of, of safety security you get in, in your dentist's office. Basically, you just put a sort of... A, a, a biohazard warning sign on the door and and use don't don't suck your pipettes very minimal precautions and this is don't, this is don't a, suck your pipettes you know? right. <laughs> that's a good 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 possible guard against germs in the laboratory stop sucking on your pipettes but anyway sorry go on i just that was a funny well, detail this is the level at which they were doing this very dangerous research showing others did they not understand that this was that dangerous? Well, obviously not, or not, or they wouldn't have used them. And in fact, the, the chief American expert on coronaviruses did all does all his research at BSL three because he knows it's dangerous and he thinks those precautions are necessary. The Chinese did not follow his good example. They did some of their very most dangerous work at BSL. Three, but most of it was at BSL two. So, given the frequent history of lab escapes, you know it's about two or three a year, including the SARS one virus that escaped four times from the Beijing Institute of Virology. Given given that lab escapes always always happen at some low level, it's hardly surprising at SARS-CoV-2, if it was, in fact, generated in the Wuhan Institute, <clears throat> could indeed have escaped. It happens, you said, three or four times a year that, that some lab somewhere that is, that is experimenting with really dangerous viruses have a leak of some kind? It's, it's three or four times a year for viruses of all kinds. Okay. But that, that's, those are just the instances we know about. Obviously, most of these incidents are, are covered up. Are there any mechanisms by which the United States could, or the West in general, could try and figure this out? Or is it so obviously against the Chinese government's interest to let anybody see this, that, that we're really up against a brick wall and we are... I mean, your book is, is essentially... It's a little book, by the way. It's, it's very clear and concise, and you also buy it. It's on... Amazon. Um, uh, where was I going with that? Who bloody hell? By what the U.S. could do. Yeah, what can the U.S. 
you in those circumstances? You're you're negatively inferred. You're saying we don't know this, and we normally do. <laughs> we do know this, and that's dangerous. It's all inferential. It's like an extremely elaborate piece of circumstantial evidence that the likelihood that this is a lab leak seems higher, considerably higher, actually, than it being something that came out of the wild, as it were. It is considerably higher. And and there's one piece of evidence that has come to light since I wrote my book, which is pretty much clinching, I would say. And that is a, a grant proposal has been surfaced, which was written by the Wuhan Institute by scientists uh, and, and their American colleagues to the Defense Department. And in this grant proposal, they said, we are going to take the fearing cleavage site and we will insert it into a range of viruses. So in other words, this is exactly the kind of experiment to the very last detail that could have generated SARS-CoV-2. Now, in fact, this proposal was too gamey even for the Defense Department, which turned them down. So we don't know that they, in fact, did the experiment, but it's very common in science to, when you apply for a grant, you you often sort of do much of the research beforehand to make sure it'll work. And if you don't get the grant, then you get money from someplace else, as the Wuhan Institute was certainly able to do. <clears throat> so the fact that they were thinking along these precise lines of, of designing a coronavirus almost identical to SARS-CoV-2, if not SARS-CoV-2 itself, shows you pretty much what the lay of the land is, in, in my view. Now, what we can do about it, now, because this, is, this issue has been so idiotically polarized between left and right, with, with Democrats saying it's an, that's a natural virus and Republicans more inclined to say it escaped from a lab. Absolutely nothing has happened for the last several years, but now that the Republicans have control of, of, of at least the House, there are several inquiries that are getting underway, which I assume will, will subpoena every possible document from the NIH and from its cutout, which was the something called the EcoHealth Alliance of New York. The NIH sent, sent its money via EcoHealth, probably because it didn't attract so much um, scrutiny that way. So these two organizations, particularly EcoHealth, which was the official funder, the direct funder of the Wuhan Institute, should surely have records of what exactly was being done with its money. And we may find from those records what was done. And I think we have more evidence of the cover-up that was clearly instituted by Anthony Fauci, the head of NIAID, and Francis Collins, the head of NIH, NIAID's parent agency. Why would they do that? I mean, presumably what this would mean, I guess, and I'm asking my answer my own question, what this would mean is the United States government spent some taxpayers' money that found its way towards the, that might have found its way. It didn't actually because the Defense Department turned it down. But though through EcoHealth, it could find its way to Wuhan and that the American taxpayer may actually have been supporting the research that may have actually led to the leak of the COVID-19 virus. Uh, yes, that's that's right. The, the NIH money definitely did flow a lot of it over a period of, of, I think, at least seven years to the Wuhan Institute. And it was supporting this research for the purpose, as you mentioned earlier, of trying to get a jump ahead of nature and see what viruses might become epidemics and develop countermeasures before they, they did. So that, that definitely happened. Why, why Collins and Fauci would want to cover it up? Well, you know, I, th I, th I think their, their interests are fairly clear. And firstly, the virus came from research which they funded either directly or indirectly. And secondly, it's an enormous blow to the whole field of virology, which they were trying to promote by allowing what's called gain-of-function research. And thirdly, it seems to me it's an enormous black eye for science as a whole, that this particular group of scientists, I'm referring to virologists, behaved so irresponsibly and, in fact, so atypically compared to other groups of scientists who, when they've come across dangerous techniques, have been very public, very open about it, and taken deliberate steps to minimize the risk. Fauci and Collins 
failed to do that. They, they kept everything under their control. They didn't allow any public debate. There was, there was some debate among virologists. And they embarked us over a period of about mm, 10 years when this first started. They embarked us on this gain-of-function experimentation with viruses for for what they thought was a greater good, but it seems, in fact, to have led to total catastrophe. The greater good would be, of course, that you would figure out vaccines in advance for particular viruses that you would you would engineer in the lab that 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 would take the form of an ev- slightly evolved virus that could then be more infectious to humans. So, in fact, you'd have to create a lethal virus in order to figure out how you would vaccinate against it. So there's something inherently risky in that. Yes. And tell me, gain of function, this is a, people have heard this term, gain of function research. Can you break that down for us? Does it, is it about getting more of your money's worth from studying viruses? I mean, because you're, you're able to like get them, you know, you're, you're thinking forward ahead a few curves of these things? Or how, why is it called gain of function? Well, it's just a, a very bland euphemism for make it, for souping up a virus and making making it more dangerous than it is in nature. Oh, so souping up a virus <laughs> would be would be a much more accurate description. Yeah. Uh, viral experimentation that would that would sounds gain of function research again. What a, the way English language is sometimes deployed to completely disguise what it's trying to say. Well, here's another question. What You would imagine that this would be an incredibly important story. The origins of a virus that shut down the world, devastated lives, killed millions, and yet I can't remember the last time I read a piece in any of the major newspapers explaining where this came from or why we still don't know where it came from, except this total constant reassurance that of course this didn't happen that way and this happens in other what would be what's their best argument for this being a naturally occurring virus well the best argument is is simply that that many epidemics do start in a natural way by an animal virus spilling over into humans so so that's perfectly possible perfectly plausible but that is the only argument in the case of SARS-CoV-2, in favor of natural emergence, because there's, as we've said before, there's none of the supporting evidence for that route, which you would expect. And yet there is... Could it be we just haven't discovered it? The Chinese haven't... Presumably there are vast search parties now going through China trying to figure out the origins of this virus. Sorry, that was maybe too sarcastic, but... No, no, there, uh, have, there have been indeed. They, they have, the Chinese have tested eighty thousand animals. Uh, really? Yeah, they've they've found nothing, including no no infected animal in this in this wet market where the virus certainly went through an expansion, but almost certainly did not originate. originate. So, in other words, the, the wet market could have played a role in evolving this virus a little bit, but that it, it's highly unlikely that the virus would spring up sui sponte, as it were, out of a wet market of dead animals. Yeah, the virus would need to have been brought into the wet market. Right. All this wet market discussion comes out of the fact that this is what happened with SARS-1. SARS-1, somehow from a bat, infected civets which are being sold in these wet markets. So people arguing for a natural emergence have tried very hard to sort of develop a similar chain for SARS-CoV-2. The trouble is it doesn't exist. No, there is not a single infected animal found by the Chinese in the wet market, even though they had every incentive to do so. And there was- the other cor- <clears throat> sorry, of the other coronaviruses, have they all have we found an origin in the animal species for all of them, or are some of them still out? For consideration. Oh, well, we know SARS one. We have an animal source for MERS. MERS. Uh, MERS. The MERS virus causes a very obscure disease. Though it's extremely lethal. So the reservoir animal for that is camels. So, so we know mm-hmm. we know before that it must have been bats because this coronavirus has a sort of bat-like structure. 
but how or where it got from camels into from bats to camels is unknown. Well, if I could jump back to something you raised earlier, which is why don't you read about this in the natural in the national? Sure, context. go ahead. Yeah, it seems to me there's been an enormous institutional failure among the media in general, but particularly with science writers. And this is the biggest science story of the decade, if not the last 50 years. So you would think every science writer would be jumping on it. Yet almost none of, none of them have, at least none of, none of the science writers on the organized major media have done so. And I think part of the problem is that you know, much of their life is simply conveying the wisdom of scientists to the unwashed masses. They, it's, it's reporting on alleged cures for cancer or advances in this, that, or the other. So they sort of slip into the rut of being basically unpaid PR agents for the for the scientific community. And newspapers like to publish this stuff because it's sort of good news offsetting the usual fare of massacres and murders. <laughs> but but the, the the science writers have kind of forgotten that it's not their job just to report advances. It's their job also to look at things that scientists don't want them to look at, to look at the structure of the scientific community, how it gets money, how it misspends some of it, how fraud and deceit continue at high levels in science when they shouldn't be. None of that do they do. And because of this mindset, I think that's one of the reasons why they have failed in their duty to the public so badly in this particular case. It sort of comes down to Trump again, it seems to me, because Trump was the one, of course, of the zillion different things he said about this, all of which are mutually contradictory in general. But when he says it's China, it's a China virus, and everybody with a college degree in America winces, and their eyes roll back into the back of their heads, and they identify this as xenophobia, as a sort of racism, and much more concerned about the possibility that calling it a China virus is going to lead to hate crimes than they are um, that this totalitarian regime has accidentally created a lethal toxin for half the, for the entire planet because they can't give Trump any credit if 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 they were to if they were to say this is a legitimate avenue of inquiry. It would mean that Trump was not wrong about everything, that every now and again, the man actually did get things right. I think that's Trump's statements are definitely what helped or even started the polarization of this issue, which seems to be terribly unfortunate. It should be a factual matter as to how the virus arose. But it seems to me such a such a juvenile attitude that obviously has prevailed in newsrooms that whatever Trump said is wrong. I mean, couldn't they sort of step their level, that game up one level and say, it doesn't matter what Trump said one way or the other. Let's look at the facts and decide for ourselves. No one did. That's the story of the American media of the last five years, I'm afraid. It's just not that curious. And it's more engaged in protecting certain elements of conventional wisdom than it is in actually challenging them hard. I mean, I'm, to be honest, when I read, I, I, this is not a subject that has really interested me until quite recently. I sort of, I didn't care really where it came from. I thought the job is to figure out how to stop it and all the rest of it. And I, and I, and I also thought a little bit, you know, South Park had, had, what was it, Randy screwing a pangolin <laughs> that created, created COVID-19. So I, there was some kind of kooky shit going around it about, about it being, you know, from an animal or something. But, and then I put it out of my head. Now, when I read your tracked let's call it that it's the first time i've ever been aware that there was n we found nothing in the environment that could have led to this it's the first time i've heard of a furin cleavage site it's the first time i've heard that this virus has a limited genetic diversity which is not that common amongst viruses that emerge in the wild in fact it's kind of streamlined and it has this extraordinary convenient little thing put in the middle of it that just makes it able to be contagious to humans. Right. I, why do I not know these things? I mean, maybe I've been not reading closely enough, but I don't remember a big piece taking, taking me down the path that your little track did. Well, you're absolutely right. There's been very little 
coverage of this issue in the mainstream press. Almost all the coverage has been dictated by the, the little group of virologists who are determined to to cover up the true origins of the virus, or at least to prevent discussion of them. And they have they have influenced the science writers who sort of depend on the stories, and the editors of these science writers have not told them to think for themselves and go out, go out and ask someone else. It also became true, I think, that Tony Fauci in particular became almost sanctified by one side of the political equation, that he was... He was the wise doctor in our national crisis. And so when you when you deal with someone like that who's supposed to tell you the comforting, important, authoritative truth, you don't you just don't want to think maybe they are covering something up. Maybe they're somewhat aware that this gain of function stuff could easily have made this happen and yet are carrying on as if nothing were the case. I've known Tony Fauci a very long time and I've always trusted him, but I lost I lost trust in early on in the epidemic when he started bullshitting us about masks. <laughs> and I realized, oh, I have proof of principle here. He will tell us things that aren't true if he thinks it's good for us, which is the worst thing to hear about a health, a health advisor or, or public person. But he has this reputation. Same with Francis Collins. He's, he's an incredibly, incredible figure in this town. I'm speaking in Washington, D.C. I mean, he has this extraordinary reputation, almost godlike. He's both this brilliant scientist and this evangelical Christian. So he has a lot of interesting, but taking on Fauci and Collins at once and saying, in fact, we need to look through your records to figure out if we played any part in this. What is the position now of Fauci and Collins on gain-of-function research altogether? Like, have they decided as a, as a, as a consequence of this to put the the, 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 a halt to it or just slow it down dramatically or to reverse what they did 10 years ago? No, they've taken no steps to reverse it that I know of. They are still promoters of gain-of-function research, along with <clears throat> all the virologists who hope to earn awards and fame by doing gain-of-function research. And, and other, very few other people in the scientific community are willing to stand up to the virologists and, and to tell them they're right off of base here. So so I think I think there's a definite I think when historians look back on this on this era, they will start looking at the first time that scientists developed a really a tech a technique of, of really potential of real potential danger. That was in, in 1975, when they first learned how to swap genes from one organism to another. And it seems very simple nowadays, but it was a sort of big deal of them. And the scientific community at that time was led by scientists of real stature and and strong ethical values, like Jim Watson and David Baltimore. And they convened a conference of the cinema, much against the will of all other scientists, at which they said, we're going to discuss this technique. We're going to figure out how dangerous it is. We're going to set guidelines for 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 how experiments should be conducted until we've got a handle on how on what the dangers are. And and if they prove less than we fear, fine, we'll lower the guidelines. And that's what they did. But nowadays we have people of much lesser stature, like Collins and Fauci, who are not ruled by a moral principle like Baltimore and Watson were. And they did not go through this cinema exercise of... Excuse me, Andrew, my, this is my grandson. Are you allowed to have your grandchildren in this? Your granddad's a live podcast. I'm sorry, I meant to shut my door, keep, I forgot. No, we will keep this in, trust me, it's, oh. it's lovely. <laughs> go on, you're distracted temporarily. I just think that our current generation of scientific leaders, as represented by Collins and Fauci, just really let us down in terms of how do you handle a really dangerous new scientific technique when it becomes available. They didn't have this open debate. They just kept it all under their own control. They allowed a certain amount of debate inside the scientific community, which, because so many scientists did in fact protest that this was dangerous, led to a moratorium on this research that lasted for just a few years until they repealed it. And, and because of this 
this negligence, an accident was bound to happen, it seems to me, and this one did. Well, you're also saying that previous accidents happened I mean, all the time, that, well, that there were viral leaks yeah. all over the place. Just none of them were quite as, as lethal as this one. They weren't actually coming from a lab or may have come from a lab, which was deliberately trying to create a virus that would be like coronavirus that would infect humans. I mean, it's, oh, uh, right. that is not like, uh-oh, big danger, guys. Like, we're, you're engineering, and I mean, this is science fiction script. You're engineering a new, we're going to create a vaccine for all future viruses. We're going to create this virus that will help us. And then it slips away, and then we're all dead. I mean, this is just this is a storyline that's it's written in every single dystopian screenplay, and every miniseries is always something like that. Why? And and I just I presumably Fauci and Collins just really want to pursue scientific advances. We saw, you know, with HIV, for example, we've saw an extraordinary, to my mind, just incredible scientific achievement in actually defanging an, an RNA virus, an RNA-based retrovirus. First time in history they ever did that. And the last time, actually, that they have done that. Maybe, I mean, putting it for the best way, they, they, were, they, were, they thought they had the potential to help so many people if they kept this research going and was worth the risk. Or were they even aware of the safety <laughs> levels at Wuhan? That's a positive way of, of putting it. And I agree that if you're running a research program, as they were, you should be prepared to take some risks and and you shouldn't listen to every naysayer who says this is dangerous because goodness knows you'll never get anything done if, if you did listen to them. But that said, if you're going to do something really dangerous like souping up a virus, then then surely you need to do far more exploratory work than Collins and Fauci did. There's no record, for example, that they held a big public conference of virologists and other experts and said, this is what we can do, guys. Is the benefit worth the risk? They kept it all in-house. They managed it bureaucratically. So now that it's blown up in their faces, I think historians are going to hold them to account for what had happened, whereas if they had, they had discussed this widely, if they had gained the imprimatur of other virologists and relevant experts, then they would have something to fall back on and say, well, we acted in a reasonable way. They didn't have that defence available to them, in my view. This is quite typical of Fauci, it seems to me, that, he's, that he, he very much thinks your average person is too dumb to understand what they're doing. And, and, and therefore, there's no need to have all this public expl exploratory stuff. They just need to know what's good for them and that, and that it's too complicated anyway. I think reading your little tractures is not, I mean, this is my thing about science writing, is that the good science writing really does help you understand what's going on in the world. And I think it's crucial. But bad science writing, which is just we have another cure for cancer and uh, look how cute these little hedgehogs are, has failed. I'm, I'm just trying to think if, if there's been a major... Has it, is it different in the UK? Is, is it more... Is the lab leak theory entertained more widely in the United Kingdom? It's been much the same in the media, but there have been more public figures in the UK who've been willing to say this looks like it came out of the lab, like the former head of MI6. DLR is on record as saying this looks like it was from a lab. So I think there's been slightly more scepticism. And the, the, the Telegraph has published several articles that, that give a fair, a fair shake to the lab origin theory. Surely one of the reasons to be resistant to this possibility is it would open up a huge question is how do we hold the Chinese government accountable for nearly killing off a large section of certainly people over the age of 80 across the planet? That when we have an actor like that, that is not a responsible global actor and yet is that, is that is participating in incredibly dangerous and difficult scientific research, what do we do? And I, I think there's it's very, very few answers to that. And they're worried that if they, 
if, if, for example, we can see that this led, that this essentially was an unwarranted, an unintended, because that's the key thing here, it's not intentional, but an unintended casualty rate in other countries are quite, if they were launching a war against us and killed a million people, it would be a whole other different thing. But in fact, they are ultimately, they may be ultimately responsible for killing a million people. And that's, that's, that's a hard thing to deal with on an international relations level. Oh, well, it certainly is. I mean, I don't think we're going to see reparations from the Chinese anytime soon. It'd just be a question of sort of moral blame once we arrived at a sort of generally agreed explanation of how this pandemic originated, which I think I think will be what that we can't prove it yet. I think will be along along the lines of of that it emerged from the Wuhan Institute. I think first of all, the Chinese scientists are responsible for conducting such an experiment under unsafe, in unsafe conditions. The US government, of course, has some secondary responsibility, it seems to me, in that it funded this line of research. It was also the leader in this research. The Chinese scientists went to, to North Carolina to be trained in techniques of manipulating coronaviruses. So we are the sort of grandfather of gain-of-function research. So I think I think the US will stand in line for some blame. I think that the international community of virologists are much to be faulted because they they knew better than anyone that this kind of these kinds of experiments were in the works in labs all over the world. But they did nothing to police themselves uh, as they should have done. So there's lots of blame to go around, but I agree it starts with the Chinese. But it also seems to me that even if we don't have proof that this was a leak from the laboratory, even but all the circumstantial evidence suggests that it may well have been, in which case, wouldn't you have an immediate policy response of shutting down gain-of-function research wherever you can to prevent such or, or subjecting all of them to sudden scrutiny, real scrutiny, making sure they have the, the safety levels required. Have we seen any of that activity in China since this happened? I mean, presumably, President Xi has a better idea of where this came from than President Biden. Uh, well, there's, uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, there's some indication that there was a, a, a complete safety review at the Wuhan Institute of, of Virology I'm in mean, October, November of 2019, <clears throat> suggesting this was a response to something bad that had happened there. Uh, okay, the- hold on. Hold on one second. That's another thing we we haven't really heard that much about. You're, you're telling us that the Wuhan Institute, just before this happened, had a, suddenly had to conduct its own investigation of security details in its own building. Uh, that's right. And what was even more significant, I think, is that the Wuhan Institute maintained a large database of uh, coronaviruses and other, other types of viral research. So this database was taken offline on September 19, I think it was, of, of 2019, and has never mm. been accessible since. So whatever was in there, the Chinese are hiding with absolutely no no good excuse, whatever. We have no other place where it came from. We have clear evidence of, of what seems to be human intervention in the Furin cleavage site. We have the disappearing of data that would show us what Wuhan had been doing up until that point. We we have evidence that just before the outbreak or a few months before the real panic began to happen, Wuhan had already worried about its its own security protocol and had done a top-to-bottom review of it. So, I mean, the circumstantial evidence at this point is overwhelming. Certainly reading your book has, has moved me. I mean, I didn't have an opinion either which way. It's moved me to that. I want to and by asking you, just a, you are, you've had this extraordinary career as a science writer and not a boring science writer because you forever, I don't know, but provocation is what you do for a living in some ways. The biggest provocation, I think, or the, the, the one that resonates with me is a sense of, of you're saying we, have, we must better understand genetics in the nature of human society, who we are, where we're going. And we have kind of forgotten that now. When you say that, people immediately jump at, jump at you and say, you're a eugenicist because they have no idea what the meaning of the word eugenicist is. But it, it strikes me that since we've decoded the human genome, 
among the most fascinating aspects of increase of human knowledge has been our genetic origins, whether it be my spitting into a cup and finding I'm even whiter than I thought I was, or how we've understood exactly, for example, how human beings first, first started wearing clothes. Are you, are, you, are you optimistic? I mean, obviously, we've also seen and witnessed scientific breakthroughs of extraordinary character. Uh, are you more optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Well, perhaps I could start by saying that I, I've never intended to provoke and didn't do so with my... Uh, oh, oh, come on. Come on. <laughs> but on human races... Well, yeah, absolutely, bloody yes. I was... We're not, even, we're not supposed to talk about that book. <laughs> I was just... Current. I once talked about that book on my blog and half the staff nearly worked at, walked out. It's true. But so why is genetics so stigmatized? I mean, it's kind of both seen as vital, but also kind of stigmatized. Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you, too, for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dishcast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.